grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us in the name of Jesus. Amen. As today we celebrate Epiphany. Epiphany is that holiday that marks the end of the Christmas season as the light of the birth of Christ has now shined to the ends of the earth. On Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus as the Word is made flesh to make His dwelling among us. But Epiphany, Epiphany is the revelation of Christ to the ends of the earth, to the nations. So He doesn't just come to the household of Israel, but to all the world. Christ is revealed to the Gentiles. And as the wise men come from the east to worship Jesus, here we see that Jesus is not just the Messiah for the Jews, but he's also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so we have the wise men. The wise men are often called magi, uh, and this comes from the Greek word magos, uh, where we get the word magician. But these men didn't practice magic. Their title meant that they were scholars. They were wise men, and they studied everything. They certainly studied the natural movements of creation. They studied the stars and the constellations, so that when the star of Jesus rose, they recognized it. And they must have also known the scriptures of the Old Testament, as men like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and many other exiles who were taken out of Judah and Jerusalem and drawn into Babylon and deeper into Persia were certainly present in the exile. They were advisors of King Nebuchadnezzar and later the kings of Persia. And when they dwelled in Babylon, they had the word of the Lord. They had the books of the law in the Old Testament. And they certainly passed this down to their successors so many generations after they died. We have the wise men. And these wise men would have studied the scriptures, and they would have begun looking for the coming of the Messiah. They knew what Balaam had prophesied in the book of Numbers. As Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. As a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. And so they know that a king would be coming, and that a star would signal the coming of this new king of Israel. And that would have been re-emphasized in Genesis 49, where Jacob prophesies, as he blesses his son Judah, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. See, they knew that the king would come from the Jews, and that he would bring peace and that tribute would be brought to him from the nations. And they certainly heard the promise to Adam and Eve of a righteous offspring who would crush the serpent's head. As it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so as they saw the star arise, they come to worship. They come to worship the newborn king of the Jews. They come to worship the one who will bring peace to the nations. They come to worship the one who will crush the serpent's head. 
And they went to the place where they expected a king to dwell. Kings are not typically born in a manger. Kings are born in royal palaces. Kings occupy capital cities. And so their first instinct would be to come to Jerusalem, looking for this newborn king of the Jews. They would have expected the Jews to recognize their king. They would have expected the residents of Judea to rejoice at the birth of this Savior and Lord who would reign over them in eternity. But they were surprised, because this is where trouble arises for the situation. The man who laid claim to the title King of the Jews was not interested in sharing his power. Herod was the King of the Jews. And for the most part, Herod was an evil tyrant. But even as he was an evil tyrant, the Jews accepted his reign. It was mutually beneficial for them, as Herod, not being a Jew himself, still loved the history and the religion of the Jewish people, and he invested in major building projects for the temple and in Jerusalem. He rebuilt all the old monuments. He built up Jerusalem to be a beautiful, flourishing capital city. He did a lot of public works campaigns that made life better for the Jews. But most importantly, Herod's rule in Judea allowed the Jews to live with at least some autonomy from the Romans. So it's better to have a king that you know, who's a tyrant, who's crazy, who's evil, than some group of foreign overlords that you don't know. And so when the wise men come to Jerusalem asking, where is he who's born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The entire city of Jerusalem falls into an uproar. The text doesn't give it enough credence. The text says that Herod and the rest of Jerusalem were troubled, but really the word in the Greek is like that they were boiling over. They were boiling over with anticipation and fear and disruption. And so here, they had their arrangement. It wasn't perfect, but they had the political outcomes that they wanted. It wasn't even good, but it kept the Romans away. They worked hard for this arrangement. They worked hard to set things up the way they wanted them to be. And now some upstart princeling is going to come and ruin everything. And the part that was really disturbing is they knew exactly who the wise men were looking for. Herod was disturbed by the question of the wise men, and he speaks to the chief priests and scribes, and he asks, where is the Christ to be born? Did you catch that? Where is the Messiah to be born? Herod knew that the child that the wise men were looking for was the long-awaited Savior. He knew they were looking for the Christ. And the scribes and the priests are more than happy to tell him where the Savior is supposed to be born. They knew, and they, all they wanted to do was put a stop to it because it would challenge their political peace, their political power. I want you to understand how insane this is. Their entire religion was built around the idea that their Savior would come. The first promise that we hear in the Scriptures 
has to do with the birth of the Savior from sin. And all of God's work with Abraham, and all of God's work with Abraham's descendants, all of God's work through his servant, King David, focused on the coming of the Savior. And now that they have the news that the Lord's Christ had come, well, all they want to do is put a stop to it. And here we see the irrational insanity of sin. Sin in its very nature. Because God acts in mercy, and what does man do? Man spits in God's face. God gives us blessings. Man sees these blessings as a curse. We see this in just about every good thing that God loves to do for us. We, we see that in maybe how we treat God's gift of marriage. What do we do to it? Well, we, we often want to flip it upside down, right? As we treat our spouses like they are our adversaries rather than our own flesh and blood. Or we, we see that husbands fail to sacrificially love their wives while wives fail to submit to and respect their husbands. And this love and submission, it's viewed as an unnecessary burden that we should be unloaded from as an old institution. And the same goes for children. As the Bible calls children a blessing from the Lord, how often do people view children as a curse? As they rob you of your free time and your money, or they rob you of the opportunity to pursue greatness or a career, they rob you of economic wealth and power. They retire, require a great deal of, of effort to care for and to teach, and so young couples go to great lengths to avoid having kids. And then we have something as simple as maybe even the, the most simple, continual, regular blessing that we have as the people of God. Going to church, reading the scriptures, hearing God's word, hearing the word of the Lord, receiving absolution from our sins. This is the best gift we have in this world. And yet, what do we say in our hearts? Boring. I'm tired. It gets in the way of the other stuff I'd rather do on the weekend. We have to get up early, get dressed. We miss brunch. It's too much effort. No thanks. Ah, and the feeble things we cling to rather than rejoice in the gifts of Christ. We often grasp on to those things that bring comfort to our flesh rather than the wonderful things that God has to give to us. Here God promises a Savior from sin, the one who would free us from bondage to sin, death, and hell. And all these men in Jerusalem could think about is how this birth would disrupt their political power. Like so many politicians who, who love to use the Christian faith to get elected, only to deny their faith when it gets in the way of their political goals. Herod and the elites of Jerusalem could not tolerate another king of the Jews. And this is how our sinful flesh reacts often, as it clings to the things that the flesh loves, right? We see that happen all the time. Bring up a person's favorite pet sin, calling it what it is. How often do people react, get angry, and defensive, make accusations of, oh, those Christians are being judgmental. And the truth is that we, we all do this in our heart of hearts. We're all sinners. And when we're told that our sins have to be left behind, have to be repented of, have to be denied, have to be forgiven, oh, what does the flesh do? It rages. When we hear God's word that says, no one who abides in him 
keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. And we say, yeah, but it's too hard to stop this one. I really like it. And what that really means is that I really can't accept that this one thing is sinful because it gives me too much pleasure. I like it too much. And so I'm going to ignore this one and let it slide. Or when a brother in the faith comes and says, we really have to talk about this. There is sin here, and it's hurting you. It's hurting others. We say, I have nothing to talk about. I'm just fine, thank you. God has no problem with what I'm doing. We see that, that rage that the flesh has against the salvation that God brings. We see that, that that resistance that the flesh has to the Savior coming to you in real time and in real life. And so we see here how sin can cling to us and, and cause us to despise Christ. We find ourselves angry at Jesus when our sins are challenged, and that's not good. It would be better that our rage was directed against ourselves, as Jesus even says, and if your foot or your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet be thrown into eternal fire. Yet love for self and love for money or love for power or love for pleasure or whatever else our sinful hearts want to cling to often drives a wedge between us and Christ. And it shouldn't be this way. Because our God doesn't come for deeper wedges to be driven between us and him. Our God comes to reconcile sinners to himself. This is why Jesus comes into the world, as John 3 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Christ has not come to rob us of our fleshly desires, but to free us from them. He comes to reconcile sinners to himself, that our sins no longer condemn us. And St. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the beauty of Christ coming into the world. That there is not a division between man and God. But man and God now stand eternally united. So that when God beholds every human being on this earth, he cannot help but behold his beloved Son. That is the reconciliation that God has for us. But Herod, the elites in Jerusalem, they did not desire this reconciliation. And if they did, it took a back seat to their sinful ambitions and desires. And we see this is not the case for the wise men, though. They came to worship Jesus. And like all good worship, their worship of Jesus confessed what they believed about Jesus. They followed the star to Bethlehem. They listened to the word that said the child was to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. 
And they came to the house where Jesus lived with his mother and Joseph. It was not a palace. They did not find Jesus adorned in princely clothing and attended by countless servants. He did not look like a newborn king. He looked like a poor baby born of a carpenter's family living far from Nazareth. Yet they believed God's word. They believed what God had promised about this newborn king. They trusted in the gifts that God had poured out on his people. And they bowed before him, and they worshipped their God. And the gifts that they brought before Jesus served as a confession of what they believed about him. They gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And each of these gifts confessed the scriptures that led them to Jesus. Gold is a gift you would bring to a king. It's a royal tribute given, to a, given by a loyal subject. Kings receive tribute from their subjects because kings have the power and authority to rule, and his rule is by divine right. We see that Jesus is the offspring of David. As Gabriel tells Mary, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The scriptures attest this child is king. Frankincense is the gift that you would give to a priest. The priest would burn incense upon the altar as he interceded for the people. Here they confess that Jesus is the one who would stand before God on our behalf and on behalf of all humanity interceding for us. It says in 1 Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And we read in Hebrews, since we have a great high priest who is passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So that we do not have, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, God becomes man. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. God becomes man so that we can draw near to God, knowing the grace of God. God reconciles sinner to himself so that we might come and stand before God with the joy of light and life and salvation. And then finally, myrrh. It's a strange gift to give to a child. Myrrh's most ancient use was for embalming and preserving dead bodies. And here, their final gift, that's their greatest confession, as they believed that this child would die for them. They believed in what Isaiah 53 teaches about the Christ, as it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquity, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have all turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Oh, that final gift, though it may have been the simplest and least elaborate of the gifts of the wise men, Oh, it was the greatest confession of this child, Jesus. Because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The wise men 
did not just adore Jesus as their king or their great high priest. They worshipped him as the one who saved them from all their sins. He would bear those things for them and bless them with eternal life. He would reconcile them to God through his death. If our worship could be as faithful and clear as that of the wise men. See, our worship must always confess that central reality. We look at what we do as we gather to worship Jesus in this place, and we see that it all revolves around Christ taking away sin. From beginning to end, the service that we follow is nothing other than the proclamation that Christ is God who forgives sinners. From the absolution that we receive at the beginning of the service to the celebration of the Lord's Supper at the end and everything in between, we declare Christ dies for sinners. St. Paul says this about the Lord's Supper as he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And St. Paul also says, I have come to you to preach Christ crucified and nothing other. We look at the greatest hymns of the church. They are the ones that declare that Christ has been crucified for poor sinners. Hymns that do not proclaim this reality, they're inferior. They're not as good. Modern Christian music that focuses primarily on our feelings and our emotions does not hold a candle to the hymns that declare the saving work of Jesus Christ for sinners. Our sins are forgiven through the death of God's Son. And we see this and know this because of what Scripture proclaims to us. And in this way, we have the wise men as our true brothers in faith and our true brothers in worship. As we share the same confession that they had, as we take part in the same spiritual worship of Jesus as the wise men did, as we come before him as sinners who are taught and cared for under the holy scriptures of the word of God, who have the Christ who has died for the sins of the world revealed to us for our salvation. We come before him as sinners who trust in him to save us by his precious life and his precious death. Our worship of Jesus always must be focused on his work of salvation. Even in heaven, this is what we will confess. As the multitudes in heaven, we read about in Revelation chapter 7, they say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And earlier in the book of Revelation, it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What do we do? We point to the Christ who died for us. In heaven and on earth, as we gather today, we point to the cross. As we gather for worship, we point to the body and blood that is slain for us that we might rejoice in the forgiveness of sins. And in heaven, we will stand before the throne of our eternal God and we will behold him and say, Look, the Lamb of God who saved me. True worship of Christ is always to live in the mercy and the grace of the one who forgives your sin. And this means that we don't cling to our sins like Herod and the leaders of Jerusalem, but we confess them to the Lord. We repent of them. We leave them behind for Jesus to take away. And we do not appease the flesh, but we put it to death. As we, by faith, crucify our old self and live in the regeneration and life of the Spirit of God 
who tells us what Jesus has done for us. We worship Jesus, the newborn King of the Jews, who is born to take away the sins of the world, who is born to declare the forgiveness of God for us. We worship with those wise men. And as we do, the light of Christ shines upon us more brightly than any Christmas star. The light of salvation has shone upon you, the nations of the earth. And so let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for the witness of the wise men. We thank you that as you led them to Jerusalem by the power of the star, that the power of your word shone through and they had faith. We pray, dear Lord, that our lives and our worship of you might live in pious imitation of their worship of the infant Christ. We ask that you work in our hearts a love for the reconciliation that comes from the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith to life everlasting. Live in Christ's peace. Amen. We rise.